Shall we get cracking? Um, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Taking Stock After the Bell, episode 18, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we're delighted to be joined today by James Hughes, investment manager at Court Achievement, who's dressed up for the occasion. I got really excited, Evan, because I thought we were delighted to be joined by Jamie, and then you said <laughs> me, and I was like... <laughs> That's well, good. We're, <laughs> well, we're even more delighted to be joined by uh, Jamie Maddock. Uh, Jamie, are. good afternoon. Jamie is Court Achievement's Global Energy and Materials Research Analyst. Uh, he analyzes companies and industries and generates investment ideas by incorporating an in-depth fundamental understanding of macroeconomic drivers and commodity supply demand balances. Mm-hmm. Jamie joined Court Achievement in 2021, has over 10 years of research and investing experience. Uh, he's worked at buy and sell side firms, including AGF Investments in Canada, no less, uh, Deutsche Bank and Morgan Stanley in London. Uh, Jamie earned a BSc in Geology and Petroleum Geology from the University of Aberdeen. Yeah, oh, there we are. Followed by a Doctor of Philosophy in Geophysics from yeah. Leeds, and I can't yeah. even say it. Um, in addition to being an avid traveller, Jamie enjoys country pursuits, spending time with friends and helping out on a family farm. It Sounds is. like a dating website. <laughs> Jamie, this pleasure is, to have you. Yeah, this, you. I mean, you got this off his Tinder profile. <laughs> oh, I must have done. I mean, that's, that's, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, but how are you doing? Oh, all right, thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. In, in the teeth of it? You just starting, yeah. Um, yeah, energy stocks have just made a total today. That's the first of them. That's about right. Mm-hmm. And then materials companies haven't started coming out yet. So we've had the um, production out. Put updates coming out, mm-hmm. yeah, but nothing, not earnings wise as yet. Those. So, what's know, the um, What's the most satisfying bit about your job as a research analyst, and what do you think is the most challenging or least rewarding? The satis- most satisfying is, well, complexity intertwined with, um, what's the best way of putting it? The information you can take from covering one sector or one stock and transferring it across to to learn or to try and have greater insight about others. Mm. It, it, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a... People always talk about this in the finance industry, right, about um, constantly evolving markets and things they have to deal with. And I think that is definitely true. Yeah. Um, I'm fortunate enough as well as they're both macro sectors. Yeah. So it's a, you know by implication a lot of people are always interested in it. And yeah, 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 it's 100%. it's good to be involved in discussion and debate about it. And the more people challenge and contest you on your view, it sort of helps to refine your own view and your mm-hmm. own understanding. So I'm not, yeah, it's it's super um, super interesting. But you know, you got sort of something called the mosaic theory, isn't it? Yeah, Where you yeah. you build a picture of something with little different pieces of information, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you put all those pieces of information together, and it you know you get a picture, a fuller yeah. picture. And I quite I quite like that, particularly in you know across your sectors, yeah. which are sort of intertwined. You're right. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, you can pick pick up a lot. I, you know, and I I often actually see greater. Um, you would think that, that doing the back doing the academic background that I have, you wouldn't necessarily think. Well, how does that apply to finance, economics, mm. and investing? But actually, geology at its heart is effectively mapping, and it's taking disparate observations in trying to interpolate so join them up and mm-hmm. interpret what those things mm-hmm. say so like mm-hmm. if you go to scotland you might see a hill but you've got to understand well you don't see all the hill but you see bits of the rock exposure so what is it that's behind all that and more or less that's what i do on a day-to-day basis i never really 
only occurred to me relatively recently that oh yeah there's actually a strong degree of similarity and crossover mm. with mm. my education so but at the same time of course that makes it super challenging because of the degrees of complexity and the multi i guess a lot of analysts would say this but when you have the micro and the macro interacting um there's a lot of cross currents mm. and things that can affect a stock price move in yeah. any individual day and i think that's maybe the same uh, but at kisa you also tend to look at the larger oil and gas and material yeah. businesses um, and they're obviously more influenced by the macro than smaller companies and, and also see the resources there it's about cash control um, it's it's less about exploration it's more yeah. about controlling margins and um, you know in reality refining everything do you have you spent any of your career looking at kind of more of the micro small cap type companies around exploration and do you find that more exciting or um, more interesting more I guess it's with a lot of it it's that in the air and are they going to find something or not yeah but, so like as a junior analyst when mm -hmm. you come into energy that's more or less what you're assigned the task of doing okay. so that's kind of what I did was my that's where I, got, I guess got my grounding in it and effectively mm -hmm. So you end up valuing a company and then a bunch of options. Mm -hmm. And again, I guess it's drawing upon the expertise that I had from my university education. That sort of company, that education is actually quite useful in discussion with management because they're so often used to having a discussion with like an e economics or whatever it might yeah. be, statistics, um, educated no person. about the geology or the... Well, mm. the well, ground that we've got here is suitable for oil because yeah. you actually do understand that. Which and is it's like, I don't think they mean to do it, but they'll bring up a seismic cross section. So this is like, mm. you know, they take the, the data will, and they give some sort of image of the subsurface. And they will say quite convincingly, we're going to drill here because we think this is mm. the target spot and we think it's going to be oil. But you can easily can challenge that and go, well, actually, it could easily be fizzy water. Yeah, they would yeah. give you the same seismic response. Uh, well, I always like a smaller company announcement of we found oh yeah we found hydrocarbons. But unfortunately, <laughs> it's more the type that you can drink as opposed well, stuff they can go in your car. Well, <laughs> I, I just I find it really interesting because we talked about this before, but <laughs> when I started my career in 2004, um, you know, oil and gas and mining were was the sexy place to be. All the rage. Was, it mm. wasn't, and you'd have management teams coming in, and you know they had these seismic charts, and mm. they show where you're drilling, and you'd be like, it "Looks very colourful. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That was> great." <laughs> Take the money. Take it now. And yeah. the, 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 the nodding donkeys, the tiny little yeah, oil producing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I, I went on a um, went on a field trip once to. Um, oh, you're really buying into it then. To Trinidad. Yeah. No, wow. Yeah, I went to mention the company. That was we saw some stuff. nodding donkeys, <laughs> and, uh, and and we went into the woods somewhere. Sounds a bit dodgy, this, but um, we could see the oil seeping from the ground. So yeah. yeah. So it was, I mean. It was, I shouldn't have been on the field trip, but it was absolutely fascinating. Mm. I, I loved yeah. it. Um, yeah. but, but my knowledge of oil and gas is not, yeah. is not, I'm better off listening to what you tell me. To no, 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 no. <laughs> um, Sometimes it's as well not knowing right and then just, you know, yeah. near on flipping a coin. I mean, if management were so insightful at their ability to strike oil more than a greater probability, they wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be have the success or lack their own. Well, wouldn't be chasing yeah. for cash in the first place. Would yeah, they? yeah, exactly. But it is funny, to that point, though, it was classic um, pre-2014 hmm? oil discovery, 
technical success, but not commercial. Yeah. Another way of saying we found some, but really not <laughs> worth spending any time here. Yeah. Fork knives. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they had rock copper and fork and oil and gas. Yeah. Actually, the business I work for listed fork and oil and gas. Is that right? Yeah. Amazing. Well, it's, it's good to have you on, Jamie. And part of the reason we thought you'd have you on is not just because we think you've got some interesting things to say, but... Um, Last time around, we had Daria Perkins from T.S. Lombard on, and we sort of talked about potentially going into a more inflationary environment, mm-hmm. and he used the phrase tangible 20s, which we used before, to be fair, and, and it's been a bit of a theme. And I guess commodities might sort of fit the bill, and this is definitely not a prediction for the next decade, but it's certainly something, something to think about. And I sort of just start us off with uh, the Bloomberg Commodity Index going back 30-odd years or so, mm-hmm. which we've just put up there now, and we can see that basically over 30 years broad index of commodities has gone absolutely nowhere mm. and we can see these spikes there's a big spike clearly in the, the the good old days that Hughesy was talking about you know the 2004 to 2007 commodities boom and then the crisis and the crash and then actually quite a strong recovery in the in the early 10s um, and then you know the 10 years to the pandemic really um, mm. commodities was an absolutely dire place to be um, <clears throat> Commodities are, are pretty cyclical, and I've got this this diagram here which you sent, which I think, you know, I'm a farmer's son, and this absolutely resonates with me. So, you know, low commodity prices in a classic cycle, depressed valuations, supply cuts happen, mm. supply comes out of the market, the price goes up again, valuations go up, and then mm. people throw money at it, which, you know, so uh, what's the famous phrase? The, the cure for high prices in yeah. commodities is high prices. Yeah. And that's what this kind of um, graphic here attempts to illustrate. So, I mean, where do you sort of think we are in, this, in the cycle? And do you think, perhaps as Daria sort of alluded to, that uh, we might be entering into a, a slightly better era for for commodities? Yeah. Just to start you off with the softball question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you just go for the on the prior uh, on the prior chart of that, of that cycle, yeah, that yeah. I mean, the high, yeah, high commodity prices. I think you could assign to a few mm. of the mm. what constituents of the, the the index that you've shown there. I mean, not. For the large majority of them, though, that wouldn't be the case. So, you know, you're somewhere round about there. You're probably, we're past the point of supply getting taken offline, at least. So when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about both metals and this sort like oil and oil, gas and yeah. things. So we're not really in the supply cut territory at the moment. But equally, we're not really in a high commodity and price environment for everything in there. Yeah. And certainly even, not elevated. Yeah, I was going to say, and especially if we inflation adjust your price or sure, yeah. prices, you know, they are much, yeah. much cheaper than they've been for years, right? Even if you were to like cut the current commodity prices, let's assume they were high and look at the implied valuations, they are not high either. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm just, that's another way of just saying, are we in an environment that we're sort of missing um, by assuming what is today's prices are relatively low um, but so actually, the, yeah, so I mean, we're still in that territory. I mean, so if we look at the sort of the geopolitics and the macro, which you sort of touched upon at the start as being part of the job, can you sort of envisage an environment where we get structurally higher inflation, more supply shocks, more volatility in commodity prices? I mean, when I say volatility, I mean them going up because yeah. war in the Middle East. And we'll come on and talk about oil and gas um, shortly, but um, you know, weather events, climate change 
yeah. Russia, Ukraine, you, you know, these things seem to be coming along. Well, they have come along more frequently in the last yeah. few years. But is is that going to be a theme of the next 10 years, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, so where that is, I guess, putting softs aside, because they tend to move with their own cycle, and probably softs and fertilizers would both fall into that camp because they're in a different cycle. Sure. But certainly, like, the energy transition is a backdrop in what it's meaning for the supply side impact on the conventional fossil fuels, like oil and gas, and at the same time, the metal side with respect to the, the demand that's been driven, like mm. the interaction of that theme of the energy transition on both of those components and the transition from one to the other is undoubtedly going to lead to continued volatility, I would say, because mm. I mean, we have this situation at the moment whereby we're forcing companies, the traditional energy companies, to restrict their supply. And we've been doing that via the mechanism of driving their share prices mm -hmm. down and mm -hmm. everyone just eschews them because, well, they're bad businesses for such a long time and they've lost shareholders such a lot of money. But at the same time, we're not, whilst we're investing into the energy transition with respect to things like our electrification of our transportation, mm -hmm. we're not doing enough yet to offset the decline. So whilst more money is going into it, the energy being added is just not sufficient. not sufficient. So there's always going to be these, I guess things are going to be out of balance, but it's particularly difficult because of this, this rapidity of the supply shock that has been felt within the fossil side, mm. at least. Um, we, and we just don't have the renewable energy in the system to counterbalance that. Yeah. Um, we don't have enough spare capacity built capacity up. We don't have enough. Resilience, isn't it? Exactly. The, and yeah, it, big issue. You know, even if there were to be the utilization of renewables in the sense of like how windy it is or how sunny it is goes up and down such a lot we need to have sufficient counterbalancing energy in the mm -hmm. mix to make up for that to prevent quite excessive volatility in price yeah. and, and we're just not there yet yeah. um well, well we'll talk a bit about energy transition a bit later on but i mean let's start with with oil and gas and and, and fossil fuel energy it's a long-term chart of the oil price also 30 years or so and and you know, the 90s, it was flat calm in the $20, $25 uh, range, bit of a blip in the Q8 war. And then it's sort of, you know, the, the, the noughties, as we alluded to, the oil price went up to $150 and Goldman Sachs famously forecast the $200 oil, which I think was the day it peaked. Um, this was back in the days of the sort of the bricks and China building 20 mm. cities the size of Chicago and, and all mm. that sort of stuff. Um, and then, of course, the financial crisis came. The oil price collapsed before kind of recovering quite long, strongly, actually. But then since then, you know, oil prices have drifted back a bit, haven't they? Um, with the exception of the Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, they dropped back quite strongly last year um, before, you know, more recently, we've had a pretty strong uptick in the oil price, actually. Mm -hmm. so why don't we why don't we sort of start with why don't we start with the Middle East? Because I think that's kind of top of everyone's list of worries mm. at the moment is what's happening in Israel and Gaza, um, as shocking as it might be. You know, is there a concern really that this is, you know, the oil price has gone up a bit on, on Middle Eastern war fears, as it often does? Yeah. Are those fears justified? And, 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 and why might those fears be justified? I mean, certainly there's a premium in the oil price reflected as a result of the, I guess, the risks in the region. Um, there are, and I guess, where, why is the premium gone in there? It's because something similar to this happened 50 years ago, more or less, to the day with the Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur War, where yeah. oil prices tripled on the back of that. Now, the difference between now versus then, beyond 
um, it escalating and expanding into other re regions fairly swiftly is that OPEC's spare capacity back then was very limited. And that's the biggest difference to where we are now is that OPEC's spare capacity is in fact quite large in comparison. Uh, we've got a chart here, in fact, of um, OPEC spare capacity, which is uh, the blue bars, isn't it? And we yeah. can see that it's relatively high compared to where it's been historically. Yeah, and certainly relative to where it was 50 years ago. Mm. So I guess all, all it's to say is, is mm. that there is reason to be concerned because of where it is with respect to the, 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 the Middle East, where the war is in the Middle East, so a lot of oil supply comes out of there. But the ability for Saudi and OPEC more broadly to respond to an escalating crisis is is there. Because the OPEC buffer. sort of lost control of the oil price a few years ago, didn't they? But actually yeah. today, I mean, you're 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 the expert. You'll know more than me. But it feels more recently they sort of grabbed the bull by the horns again and yeah. seem to be controlling. The, I mean, they're yeah, yeah. No, they have, before yeah. the, before the Middle East, you know, um, disaster. Um, has happened, you know, they were cutting supply and yeah. they actually they'd actually already started pushing the yeah. price up, hadn't they? And then you obviously had the US government coming out saying they were going to refill some of the reserves, yeah. which reserves. Hmm. they said they were going to do a long time before. And then it, what actually surprised me was the price was much lower and they said nothing. Yeah. And then obviously Saudi came along restricting and they've decided to try and refill at a higher level, which mm. yeah. is like trying to pull the bottom of the Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does feel they've got more control over the price than they've yeah. had. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, which is which is interesting. And th their action has been really the sole reason for the price prior to what happened more recently. Mm. More or less, Saudi's actions alone was the reason for the way the price has traded this year. So you're right, they have wrestle control and... The thing that we haven't, and that chart of the sort of long-term oil price chart, mm. the thing that's changed to allow that to happen is shale oil producers, which were basically the marginal supply that was growing rapidly through that period <laughs> whereby it kind yeah. of trended sideways. U.S. oil supply was growing at 2 million barrels a year. So yeah. that period there, it was well easily outgrowing global oil mm. demand growth. Mm. And then at the point where it tipped over, of course, is when, well, my understanding of why that's not coming back on stream is because of syndication of banks. Essentially, there's not as much debt being, or, or basically, traditionally, a bank syndication, you might have nine banks in there. And because of ESG reasons, you might only have three or four, and they can't get the same level of debt. Is that part? Is that yeah, right? for sure. Yeah, yeah. And of course, right. CEOs are compensated, and, and more so in the States than here. A large part of the enumeration is share-based, so you know oil price collapses on rapidly growing supply and mm. lacking demand. Stock price goes down. I mean, what's the thing you start doing? You start having to ask shareholders what is it you want, and yeah. the thing they ask yeah. for after the three years is discipline, and more or less mm. the response in the sh in the oil price is um, that discipline coming through. So to the yeah to bring this chart back up, supply started getting taken off. And where are we now? It's that they are being, uh, what's the best words? Um, they're being relatively disciplined now. No, yeah, no well, I was going to say, sorry, what I was going to say was management are being rewarded for that discipline yeah. by higher mm -hmm. share prices. Yeah. And they obviously share in that benefit from their stock price appreciation and the benefits mm -hmm. they see. So whilst it was during that period when China was growing very rapidly and you know, they're being rewarded for bringing barrels mm. to the market mm. and they were basically spending more than their cash flow 
um, organic cash flow was generating, they were bringing in. So to the point that you were saying about banks, yeah, I mean, they were basically drawing on bank capital and equity raisings, like we're talking yeah. about the EMP territory, to grow supply as fast as possible, because that's the way they were compensated. So um, the discipline that has been instilled upon them, because, well, banks have withdrawn, share prices collapsed, and that's more or less the response we've seen there. More recently, there's, we've probably moved from that environment, and whilst that discipline is still there, the two things which are interesting is, despite that very sharp oil price rally, activity has lagged that. So we haven't gone back to old behaviors yet. Mm -hmm. So the correlation between response and activity and oil prices is not there. But also there's now questions on whether the quality of onshore oil reserves are there in the States. Right. As in like, can we ever go back to the speed of growth that we had back then? One is the oil food service industry there large enough because it of course got sized to pieces um, through the drawdown that you saw in the oil price because everyone withdrew activity and tried mm. to survive. But also, the, so there's that component, just the pure service capacity, but also just is the quality of reservoir and rock there to get back to the, the rates of growth and supply that we had. And I think now there's more emerging evidence suggests that we probably can't get back to that again. Mm. Okay. Because shale oil in the States is quite a dirty business, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but you know they take basically a big pipe of water and they inject the water at high pressure with sand. Yeah. That right. Yeah, yeah. And then they kind of blow the hole out with high pressure water to yeah, get the oil out. Pretty much. It's quite a dirty business, quite high energy. It's not yeah, yeah. it's not environmentally friendly by any stretch. No. And that and, and that's the reason for a lot of the in the UK why we've not gone down yeah, the right. route of looking for shale yeah. oil is because of the the potential environmental in a much more crowded island. It's not anywhere near as yeah. friendly, I suppose, is the right phrase. The um I think the scale of America is often underappreciated yeah, by Brits. Mm. And if I remember overlaying the well density they have in America on the UK, and it's just like Yorkshire, Lancashire, gone. <laughs> it's just like peppered with well, because people don't really appreciate they're not that far apart mm -hmm. and they go for, you know, kilometers beneath the surface horizontally. I mean, yeah. and there's just thousands of them being drilled. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, at its peak, there was hundreds of rigs drilling thousands of wells a year, yeah. like there'd be nothing not left. Here. No, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just, I'm, that's not like a political statement. That's no, pure, that's just the, the rational Job fact of yeah. our roads couldn't physically yeah. carry the, the materials required in order to bring the 10,000 gallons of water that are needed to a well site. Amazing. So, I mean, in terms of the oil price, what are the sort of short-term drivers in your view? You know, we talked a bit about supply and OPEC. Uh, yeah. On the demand side, we've got potential for Western recession, recession yeah, generally yeah, is all negative, but then you've got China coming back as well. So, you know, what are you, what, what are the sort of bull and bear cases in the so, market at the moment? If we talk about the supply side, yeah, and what might happen in the Middle East and how that might separate, broaden out and the impact that might have to other supply getting taken off. But on the demand side, all year, you've more or less seen demand soften. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, that's a primary reason why we've seen Saudi respond as a way they have to basically offset the impact of that softening. But you're right, I mean, as, the Western world has softened, China more or less has, has grown. So mm. all the demand growth that we're seeing this year pretty much is is China-led. Right. And that's mostly just jets flying around, people yeah. traveling more. Mm. So Not to put you on the spot, what proportion of oil is used for planes flying? I mean, what, do you know what the split is of, of oil? Where does no, all your top of my head. No. But I'm just saying on the, in the context of like where the growth is coming it's the from, growth it's the like, changes, yeah, it's the delta, it's, 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 it's the all, the finance is used, yeah, yeah, yeah. Loves a delta. it comes entirely from that. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But that man is interesting is because when we have a recession, we stop going on holiday, we stop flying on planes. Yeah. That's the marginal yeah. demand. And that's why the oil price in 2007, you know, pretty much collapsed, as well as in 2000. And 2000 is the more obvious reason. Yeah. We stopped going anywhere and all the oil price... Talk us through the uh, the fateful day in April 2020 when the oil price went negative. You yeah. were paying people to take oil off yeah. your hands. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I still got a picture of that. And if we... Um, and then one more... But, and I would just say on that, you know, like in the context of where we were this year, like we came into the year with high expectations about China against the backdrop. I think everybody thought that the, the rate of interest rates going up would inevitably fairly swiftly translate into economic slowdown. And it was pretty quick. You could see in the data pretty quickly that, that there was having some emerging impact. So I actually came into the year and basically end maybe from September of last year to coming into this year with fairly bearishly yeah, viewing the energy work. sector. And so the demand was a little bit soft in the Western world. We hadn't really seen China picking up, not just that, but when China did come back, it didn't really come back yeah. in a way, which is in hindsight is maybe not that surprising because much like when our restrictions got removed. We yeah. weren't just straight out there. It was the bit of this stop start and going to the world. And then more or less that bearishness was overwhelmed by the simple fact of Saudi coming in, so we're going to take 2 million barrels off the yeah. market and offset yeah. that slowdown. So yeah. it's really completely changed where we were from the start of the year versus now. Yet the demand backdrop more or less remains the same, but yet the supply picture has been completely changed by mm. the, the single, and to your point, the wrestle control of the market away from, away from the other producers. Yeah. Yeah. And then moving close to home, Jamie, we've got, you know, the story of the last two years in the UK has been about gas prices mm -hmm. and about our energy bills. And we're seeing now as we go into this winter, um, despite gas prices being UK gas prices being lower, we're actually going to end up paying more energy bills this winter because we've lost the government yeah. subsidy. Now, we've got a long a two year chart of UK natural gas, which is essentially what the power stations pay for marginal Mm. energy if i'm not mistaken and we can see pre-war it was about uh what 80 dollars uh pounds a therm is it a therm, a therm. Is usually price is that what you have there I think yeah. So, yeah and then we can see clearly in in, uh, in september last year that spiked to over 600 pounds a therm as mm. kind of russia turned the taps off and you know historically we in the uk have have not really um future-proofed our kind of um, storage of natural gas and things to be slightly mm. controversial about it. I mean, the natural gas price did collapse over the last 9, 12 months. However, it has sort of ticked back up again. Mm. What are we likely to see this winter in terms of gas prices? Are we going to see another spike? Do we have enough gas to see us through the winter? What if our friend in Russia decides to turn the taps off again? You know, is, is that a, a risk, a, a real risk for us, or just a kind of potential outlier? I mean... I don't think we'll see what we saw back then again. Mm. Um, one, the dependence upon Russia is substantially reduced um, and there's greater, I guess, preparation for defending against that. pretty much full storage, aren't we? Yeah, across Europe. The, yeah. the issue, though, um, is this is all weather dependent. Yeah. We have a, so to the point on storage, yeah, we're pretty much there. But we can deplete that very quickly were it to be a cold winter. Yeah, we were bailed out by last winter by having a really mild winter. Right? Yeah. And particularly in Europe, they didn't have many cold snaps at all. And, yeah. and storage held up really well. Yeah. I mean, industrial activity last year and this year is down quite a lot. So it's the industrial output side is, I guess, reflecting the higher prices mm -hmm. by just doing less. Mm -hmm. um, it yeah. just amazes me how little attention is given to us doing more. 
Like that never seems to be a discussion point. Like last year, it seemed odd that we were never compensated for reduction in usage because that's mm -hmm. ultimately the easiest way to make to mitigate those price spikes. But we were basically just given more money to yeah, use the same we amount were. of power. Mm -hmm. And I we think wanted. I read some of the Germans uh, used twenty percent less energy domestically. Yeah, which is a huge number for every household to use twenty percent less. But there was I never. Thought, I thought the UK used. We use a bit less, but that was mainly a price mechanism thing. Like there was no, if you think about it, there was no advertising campaign by the government saying sticky woolly gloves no. on. Yeah. This yeah. is how you cope. Like well, we didn't drive that message yeah. home like they did in Europe in particular. Yeah, I mean. Because it's a sort of quasi-war quasi, quasi -war effort, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah. it's always rational. Yeah, I mean, my wife works for a German bank, a German investment bank. And I know in Germany they turned off things like the water features. and mm -hmm. um, they, they did a lot. And everyone had to leave work at. Um, you know, maybe historically the lights were on all night, which I guess you know, is a complete waste of energy. But they said six thirty, everything's turned off, mm. and, and I think they've carried on doing it. Actually, mm. good idea. I mean, the thing is, as well, a striking difference two degrees can make in your thermostat. Yeah. If the whole of the country well, you decided, go, you can go from being really comfortable to bloody freezing. <laughs> it's grand. Well, I mean, depends. Like my mindset at seventeen, and it's freezing. <laughs> okay, maybe you can't lower yours too. <laughs> so you're like meeting room seven in here, isn't it? Yeah. Twenty. No, but hundred percent is two degrees. I mean, if anyone has their house at twenty-three, I mean, yeah, that is hard. money to burn. But, but yeah, so you know, I, it, jo Johnny's guys at twenty-five. He walks around in his swim shorts, doesn't he? <laughs> you know, that picture can change pretty swiftly on the back of a pretty cold winter. We don't have the sufficient storage. Mm. Um, Are we building storage? Compensate, not to my knowledge, no. Because no. we got rid of all our storage. That would be forward thinking. Ago. Yeah, okay. We, we stay away from that. And more or less, they tried to deliver an energy transition whilst being entirely dependent on cheap gas piped in from a potential adversary mm. at the same time. That's so, a take. That is a take, I mean, isn't it's, it? That is the fourth so it's finest. I mean, a year ago... You know, almost every conversation was around starting up nuclear again, and that seems mm. to, you know, we, those conversations have finished again. The Rolls Royce modular. Yeah. 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 yeah, you're right. This it's a key component of any energy transition mm. solution, but doesn't. Fusion was written about in almost every paper every weekend. It's, mm. um, but it's amazing what <clears throat> sort of the oil price falling and. Um, energy prices getting cheaper does people mm. lose interest very quickly, don't they? Mm. And we talked about some of the oil majors. I mean, I'm sort of moving on to the sort of some of the oil majors, mm. and um, you know, BP and Shell sit close to our hearts because they're the, you know two of the biggest stocks in the UK market, and mm. we love the dear old FTSE on this podcast, don't we, Hughie? Um, Massively undervalued. And we've, um, <laughs> we've got a 30-year chart of <laughs> the, the global energy sector. <laughs> so these are the um, all of the oil and gas stocks globally. So BP, Shell, Total, Chevron, Exxon. Um, etc etc and what we can see clearly through the 90s and the noughties was how well they did and then since mm. you know 2010 they essentially went nowhere and this is total mm. returns and mm. this includes dividends um, until recently where we've had a bit of a leg up post pandemic so it's been a pretty tough period to be you know over 30 years investors have broadly done well investing in oil and gas yeah yeah but they had to endure a lost decade and a half, right? Mm. Until the last few. How was it being an oil and gas analyst during the tens? No, <laughs> it depends which part of the tens you're talking about. <laughs> it was either uh, trips to Kenya and uh, Mauritius to see potential exploration hotspots, oh. and the first part and Hot the latter spots. part was, uh, yeah, major cutbacks. And, and that, uh, obviously, you were sell side then. Was that? Um, was that? Was that sort of? Doing research to sell, or was that on the M and A and um, kind of IPO side of things? Uh, so yeah, I mean, well, 
a lot of it was around fundraising opportunities Fine, okay. with respect to expanding drilling campaign programs. Instead of doing 10 wells, we'll try have a crack at 30. So you open were covering the Georgia maps going, look at this, this is amazing. I mean, look at this I, I mean a couple of our colleagues got um, well and truly sucked in, so I think it was Bahamas Petroleum. I just wondered how long it'd be before <laughs> that came out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and, changed uh, it's, it's changed its name again, and I think it's, right. it's probably become uh, some crypto. It's probably crypto for a bit. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, it's, oh, now, now it's probably um, an AI business, I suspect. Yeah. Um, isn't that Bankman, Bankman Freed's place? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 that's, that's right. True. But no, I was, yeah, it was dire. And I mean, the, the, the share price chart that tracked sideways was just reflect with the fact that yeah, they weren't making money above their cost of capital to return to shareholders. They were using debt to pay dividends to shareholders that demanded mm. it. But yet they had businesses which were outspending the cash that they were generating. Mm. And, and rightly so, they track sideways. But the last, I mean, the last three years has been a bit different, isn't it? And we have seen some good returns um, from the sector, mm. particularly in 2022 when mm. pretty much everything was going down. You know, the energy sector was... Was kind of the only place to be really, and and we've got a we've got a slightly busy chart here about you know what the majors are doing. But I guess to come back to your point about what were they doing during the tens, um, we can see that the bottom two or three bits of that chart are basically dividends and buybacks, and and the middle block in blue, the mid the big block in the middle is is capital expenditure. And, and anything I guess that's notable for me is how in the last ten years, the level of capital expenditure has fallen pretty drastically. Mm. As we talked about with the cycle, when prices go down and valuations go down, people stop investing, yeah. and chief execs are um, are more incentivized to kind of strengthen the balance sheet and, yeah. and not go searching for new oil. So, I guess the question here is, is is there a risk that the absence of capex in the last five or ten years mm. is sowing the seeds of the next shortage? Is is that a real concern in your view on a medium term basis? It's funny because that was. <sighs> Doesn't this is not be hugely uh, helpful? But originally, when the, when the first downturn happened, it was anticipated that the the, the fall off in supply would be pretty rapid, mm -hmm. and it hasn't really been the case. Right. We've we've found basically they've found using less money. Another way of saying it, being more efficient, right? They've used less money to do just okay. as much as they were before. So I presume it's been like massive deflation as well. Yeah, so yeah well, that's right. You, so you, I mean, you like ten million dollars can buy a few more rigs. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And the rigs that were priced at premium and were more efficient are now half the price on a per day basis. So mm. you kind of get more. And that's, that's, we're now, I mean, that's probably that case just now. I mean, I would say that America, like I say, in the US onshore, it pro, it's more or less run out of all those efficiency gains. Yeah. So the, the gains you're seeing now were probably more on the cost sides. Mm. It's difficult to disaggregate the contribution from it, but you know, a lot of, Companies were talking about the benefit of digital, the ability to sort of increase operational efficiency. Are they using AI? Is it? Well, using, no, no. They're I mean, using digital <laughs> twins, weren't they? To try and which which was super interesting. Like, yeah. And to try and like before this is ridiculous as it sounds, but before it was different companies would have different paints mm. for their rigs, for their platforms, and. They would use, you know, the nut would be X mil that this engineer yeah. would use and the BP engineer would use a different, different nut. And different it's standard. all about yeah. sort of industrialization of um, manufacturing now. And I love that stuff. That's, that's, that's really interesting. They're more or less trying to take what they had on US onshore and use it for these larger projects, which are typically mm -hmm. done by the majors. And 
So I think that's probably the reason why we've still not seen this rapid fall off. Mm. But there is that's got to be in the background, though, mm. the thing. And it's, it is something that we're always cognizant of that as a la- that is a, the sort of the reallocation of capital. You've got to mm. be storing up problems and, mm. you know. We- is Saudi, has Saudi not just, just not got so much oil that they're always able to supply into it? Yeah. How much oil do they have? Can they go another 50 years, 100 years? Yeah, I mean, they've got ample. They will be the last man mm. standing. But we, we're not at peak oil demand yet, are we? So the latest IEA estimate, so IEA, International Energy Agency, they say 2030s. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I would say is that, like, people hear the word peak and they think alpine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's like peak like uh, this. Table, sort of, man, table mountain. Table mountain. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's exactly right. So, you know... To have this, the word peak and peak oil and peak demand, it sort of doesn't, it sort of misses the point about where I'm probably going to have peak and bumping along mm-hmm. ups and downs for a good number of years yet. But it, I mean, it's interesting if, you, if you're Saudi, if you're Saudi, if you've got a super long time horizon mm-hmm. and you've got loads of oil that's enough to last 50 or 100 years and your wealth is reliant on that oil day to yeah. day as well as long term, if, if everyone is telling you that we need to stop burning fossil fuels because of climate change, and at some point we are going to transition, we'll come on to talk about transition, we'll transition away from fossil fuels. Mm. Therefore, your fossil fuels are going to be essentially valueless at a point yeah. in the future because mm. we're not going to be using them anymore. Yeah. So, you know, the, the the sort of thing that slightly surprises me in a way is that, well, if we need to sell as much as we can now, at as, even at any price, because yeah. we want to, it's, we're better off selling it at $10 a barrel, we're better off selling 100 million barrels at 10 than yeah. we are selling naught at... Yeah, or whatever but they definitely like. do that balance. I mean, at the moment, I I would certainly Russia is better off now, even if, by supplying less than it was last year because yeah, the price are high. Price. And I'm almost certain that Saudi thinks about probably not on the hundred year view, but no. I'm guessing they think on a three to five year view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we think about using the levers of price mm. in volume to maximize return? Mm. But it often maybe doesn't, but it. I mean, look at the, the things that they're doing to reinvest in their country, the footballers that they're bringing over. There. They're like, they have oodles of cash and they are taking it seriously. Like, I think, you know, they are investing heavily into their own economies because they are mindful about this. Mindful of transitioning. And many of the things that they've done, so listing Saudi Aramco and there's been pipeline companies that listing, they are monetizing their their fossil fuel oriented in a mm. public market setting. Mm. So And Saudi Aramco is the third biggest company in the world? Some of it is now, Second right? Or third? Yeah, it was, Apple and Microsoft, I think, think so, are bigger yeah, than market yeah. Saudi Aramco is very, I mean it's very, very small through so their free flow yeah, of Aramco is tiny, tiny. Yeah. Yeah, they are they're not blind to it, I don't think. And you could have a laugh about whether you think getting footballers over there is the right thing to do, but yeah. they're they're well if that fails they've got the golf, haven't they? So right, the yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're gonna build this they're holding um the uh Asia Winter Olympics there. No way. Yeah yeah. They're gonna build uh, a sports washing guy. <laughs> ski slope and that's, whatnot. That's for another day. And then I guess the other sort of hot story as far as the oil and gas majors are concerned, and we've been talking about BP in our morning meetings and things for mm. a few months. So mm. BP Looks a little bit rudderless. Got no chief exec after the issues a few weeks ago. It's sort yeah. of, um, and we sort of maybe thought that maybe Chevron or Exxon might yeah. might think that that might be mm. useful. But we've seen, we have seen some pretty chunky M and A in yeah. October alone. So uh, the two headlines here up on the on the slide: Exxon Mobil agrees to buy 
Shell Group pioneer in $59.5 billion. That's quite mm. a big, big deal. And then two weeks later, or even a week later, Chevron to buy US oil producer Hess for $53 billion. So some pretty chunky mm. deals going mm. through. Does this, I mean, does this surprise you? I mean, cost of money has gone up quite a lot. Yeah. Cost of debt's gone up. Then clearly they're not spending it on exp- exploring or capex yeah. for finding new oil. Um, is buying Hess and Pioneer cheaper than looking for more oil themselves? That's a good question. We used to think about that when we were thinking about the EMPs, basically like per barrel acquisition cost versus finding and development cost. I mean, both is what's interesting about both. So both these deals were done with shares. Yeah. Both were all share deals. Yeah. I think that was kind of helpful, at least, to thinking Absolutely. we're not moving into that final. Last or rather. Yeah, because yeah. you know M and A does when you've got oil at near on hundred does feel a bit toppy. It does a bit toppy. Um, but when they're using shares and not much of a premium, and when you look at both the company's valuations and the tarts of the, the acquirers and to be acquired valuations, they're not high valuations. Right. Or you, you can maybe argue, okay, well, the oil price is a bit elevated, mm-hmm. therefore the valuation they're paying is a little bit higher. But they're paying in shares, it's not yeah. that important. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was sort of remember being told that. You know, Vodafone did a lot of M&A in the 90s, and obviously the share price went kind of mental. Yeah. But all the deals they did was in stock, so they never pay cash, mm. yeah. which is why the company is still going. Admittedly, the share price is nowhere near back to where it was. But the flip side of that is that Royal Bank of Scotland, yeah. um, in its yeah. prime, paid yeah. cash for Avian Amro, yeah. which yeah. killed it, basically. Yeah. Well, it would have died anyway. But, you know, so that's kind of encouraging to see in a way. But um, any, you know, on, on the UK majors, BP and Shell in particular, would you be shocked if anything came along for them, I mean Chevron and Exxon clearly the two big players, so presumably they're they're done for M and A for the time. Yeah, day. I mean what's interesting is that divergence right between U.S. and European majors. Both the U.S. majors have, have made it pretty clear they're not interested in an European style mm-hmm. acquisition in the context of energy transition or anything like that. They're both pure play oil producers that they've, they've gone for. One's Exxon's gone for an, an onshore producer. Um, basically rebalancing its upstream portfolio to have more, basically more of what Chevron has. And then when you think about the Chevron acquisition, it's gone for ostensibly an offshore acquisition. So in fact, their upstream portfolios now are more comparable post-deals than they were pre-deals. So that's interesting in itself, Mm -hmm. but not least they're upstream producers, not refiners or chemicals, Mm -hmm. uh, chemical manufacturer, and then nothing in of any note within conventional renewable energy output. So yeah. So when you, you say, like, what would, you, sorry. I was going to say, do you want to touch on the sort of valuation differences? I haven't got any charts on it, but, you know, Exxon and Chevron, from a valuation perspective, look a lot more expensive than BP Shell, yeah. Total in particular. And, and you know, what are some of the reasons behind that? So it's so it's so hard to disaggregate. And to put it in context, they started the year at twice the valuation. Twice the valuation. And they come in quite a lot. So the way of saying that is, is that Europe is re-rated or Europe, UK is re-rated relative to US de-rated. Why is that? You know, I think you would have come into this start of this year and gone, this is all renewable energy output oriented, as in you are oil companies in Europe, that is, but you're spending 10, 15% of your business on renewable power output. Mm -hmm. And you've set your stall out as to say, you want to take 10, 15% of your capital budget and put it on cost of capital return like projects as opposed to putting it back to oil or giving it back to us. Mm. 
And so I think oil. So if you're BP or Shell or Chevron or Exxon, it's more profitable from a return on capital perspective to go and find more oil than to go up in yeah. wind turbines. Is that yeah, right? still. Yeah, yeah. And that, but I think the other thing which has become apparent this year is government intervention and interference. There is, within the US at least, um, there is less pressure upon the majors to be delivering the energy transition in the con- in the context or the, the way we think about it in Europe, as in you're an energy company and your energy you provide needs to be either fossil or clean in the context of mm-hmm. renewable power. Whereas there, it's they're leaving it up to different companies to deliver yeah, that. So there's not the same political pressure and there's not the same interference, there's not windfall taxes. So yeah. I actually think there's probably an element of that valuation differential, which is they're just left to produce oil um, without government intervention and yeah. they're, they're doing what they should be doing which is just drilling drilling for oil, yeah. drilling for oil producing it, it yeah. and then giving what they give out to shareholders yeah. what is not is not yeah. needed and to your question on what they might do i it, it, within europe i mean we've seen uh walking back um the, the non-pivot pivot as bp did when it said we're going to let our fossil fuel output decline by 15 percent and they sort of walked back from that a little yeah. bit and said, we're, we're going to invest the same, what was it? I can't remember the exact phrasing, but they basically said, we're going to spend exactly the same as we were before. We're just going to spend a little bit more on one versus what mm-hmm. we were on the other. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can see BP Shell do a renewable energy type transaction. Um, that would make it, would it make more sense? I don't it would know. be consistent with what um, the political backdrop and the public would like. But recent actions by both companies would be aw- are away from that. Most recently today, it was in the news that Shell were cutting back their low carbon energies team by they were letting go of a, a couple hundred of right. them. So okay. recent steps would we've suggest got, got they're moving. Chart, we've got a chart on the screen to show exactly why they're doing that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the, the chart here was sort of um, a neat, neat segue. Is um, there's a clean energy ETF um, that's traded globally. Uh, against what we might describe as traditional energy mm. from pre-pandemic. And we can see that in that kind of lockdown pandemic era, um, everyone was bidding significantly higher, the, mm. the clean energy share names. And I'm, I'm going to say that Vestas and, and those sorts of names are probably... Orsted. Yeah, the big manufacturers of wind turbines are in the clean energy ETF, whereas traditional oil companies collapsed. And, and those two mm. lines have, um, have, have met each other again, mm. which is extraordinary because... Those renewables names have been absolutely hammered in the last six nine months in particular, but you know, it's part, part of that subsidy pricing rolling yeah. over. I don't know. Oil we'd, we'd have to get a man from Schroeder on. His name Mark uh, Mark Lacey from Schroeder. Yes. He's very good on this sort of stuff. Um, um, you've had cost of capital change, of course, and yeah, input true. materials yeah, yeah, yeah. have materially changed because many of these renewable energy power output companies would contract. Um, the project and the construction of the materials, but the mid cost of materials have gone up massively. Yeah. Because Siemens of, have had some sort of bailout today from the German government, the, the wind turbine division, yeah, 600 yeah. million euros or something, and they, they blamed cost in inflation in that. And, and is that and that's metal, that, that sort of rare earth pricing, metal pricing? No, no, just conventional metal pricing. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it you know, the similarities with the oil field services are strong in that mm. they, all were, they all were chasing projects. Yeah. You yeah. sign me up and I will build you it. And then the yeah. terms and conditions associated with those contracts that he signed were poorly written, I guess mm-hmm. is the best way of putting it. But at the you know, a bit like oil field services were at the time in twenty fourteen, it was all work is good work. And if we can get 
so larger they, order books, so the share prices too, go on. Yeah, too much for lands, too much. They've ordered too much. Just margins have gone. Yeah, they just, it just, yeah. Because a fund manager said to me, it was a long time ago now, but he said he saw a lot of similarities with the oil and gas industry as he saw in tobacco. Tobacco, yeah. 15, yeah. I've heard years that before. Well, which it was is back in the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, Political. which is essentially, yeah. we can see peak demand. Yeah. We know. We know in time this product won't exist, yeah. slash will certainly not exist in the same way. So supply is going to fall and fall and fall because of it, because it's not the E&P companies. You yeah. end up with much fewer players. I mean, if you look at tobacco, there's probably three or four players now, and that's it. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're sort of getting, you know, you're a long way from it in oil, but if you think about the majors, you know, there's no smaller mid-caps popping up. Yeah. You know, actually, the smaller mid, there's smaller mid-caps falling over still. But, it, but, it, but the 20 years from 96, 97, 98, yeah. British American Tobacco and Imperial Tobacco were the best performing stocks. Oh, I'm the, absolutely. And I, think, a year. and I think LTIPs, so, I mean, you're, you're no better, but presumably management teams, their LTIPs were all linked to EPS. Mm. Um, actually, kind of the revenue growth and what they were probably looking for before, what their incentives were, have changed, and that's been a push from shareholders. Mm. Uh, I'm sure some of their incentive plans are around renewables as well, but... Um, I think probably shareholders have put a lot of pressure on these businesses. But I mean, that, that's quite a good comp. So you, you can have a, a structurally declining industry over twenty mm. years, and Make shareholders still get yeah. really well rewarded. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I don't think we need to be. No, you know, I th- no. BP and Shell no. be fine. I would have think. I mean, for shareholders, the alarm bells come from spend changing yeah. and yeah. that that yeah. appetite, and then buying deals. Stuff at the top of the market. But yeah. if they're buying deals with shares, and they're still to be a little bit hesitant about yeah. progressing and pushing ahead, I think. The threat, at least in Europe, is still quite strong. Around to your point around the demand, I think the more that they get told demand has been threatened, that's probably shareholder positive in the context of the conventional energy producers because yeah. the reinforcement of capital discipline, yeah. shareholder returns, yeah. Yeah. I think you know maintains mm. them that focus, like you said, because mm. it's so easy for them to say. I mean, mm. People are not addicted to their product, unlike cigarettes. No, no. although I did see, like, I did see in Scotland. There was a, a couple who bought a new Tesla and they've done 7,000 miles and uh, the battery has blown up and it's not under warranty because in the TNCs of Tesla, mm. it says you can't drive it in the rain. <laughs> no way. True story. Right. It's well, in the Aberdeen, Aberdeen News or something. Right. I mean, Jamie reads it regularly. Yeah, the press and journal. <laughs> the big news of the Raymond household is that we've taken delivery of an electric car. Yeah. Have you? Yeah, we well, don't drive it in the rain. Don't drive it in the rain. <laughs> right, well, that sort of rules out winter, doesn't it? <laughs> So far, very happy, but we've got this this rather sort of you know on clean energy and um, energy transition. We've got this slightly slightly messy chart here, but I think it proves mm. a point. If we um, it's the metal and mineral requirements of mm. the energy transition, and, and the top two bars here are the the comparison of metals use in an electric car versus a conventional car. And if we highlight just the blue bit of the bar, which is copper. Um, we can see that the typical electric car has, what, twice, if not three times as much mm. copper in it, as well as everything else, notably lithium, manganese, cobalt, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, the second part of the chart is for power generation. And on offshore wind has got a very high content of metals, including zinc, copper. Copper makes sense, of course, because if you stick a wind turbine in the sea, you've got to get the power back to shore <laughs> yeah. via a copper cable. Yeah. Um, compare that to... You know, even nuclear, but particularly natural gas, which has got a very low yeah. uh, metals content. Um, do you just want to sort of talk us through this and, and why maybe 
the profits to be made from energy transition is in mm. in the mining stocks. Is that? I mean, the, the summary, I guess, of all to say this is that clean energy is just less energy dense, mm -hmm. and therefore, in order to con manufacture or capture or whatever you want to say, a joule of energy, just takes a lot more product in which to do it. But of course, it's a lot cleaner. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes without saying that you need a mm -hmm. significantly large amount of metal in which to manufacture any of your, your turbines. Mm. And the copper price, I mean, there's a long-term chart here, the copper price. And it's not, I mean, it's gone up over time, but it's not what you'd call kind of do-lally, is it? So it's, um, it's some some structural kind of demand drivers in the copper, copper market, do you think? So what's interesting about copper is that through history, it's re repeatedly been shown that we'd have supply deficits and ordinarily that supply the demand is met by new supply coming mm -hmm. and there's this sort of the ability to bring on projects often fills a gap but that is in a, the traditional world of more people needing ac and building infrastructure in china and the um grid infrastructure that sort of thing is offset by efficiencies elsewhere yeah but it's a different setup now though when and it's not massive. Like if you think about global copper demand, it's like 3% growth per year. You think, oh, okay, what was the energy transition due to that? And you think, oh, it's like 50 bips, maybe percent additional right? per year okay. on top so of it's not, it's not meaningful. transformational, but it's enough. enough if you know to what I mean? The balance. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And this, this chart here is um, was in an FT article from a few weeks ago. I think it was the chief exec of uh, Freeport McNamaran, the world's biggest copper producer, golden copper producer talking about where is the copper going to come from and this is a rather scary looking chart about um, supply shortages in copper I mean will this come to pass or is this a bit scaremongering and you know it's got the word estimate on it yeah so uh, I mean anyone can estimate can't they um, I mean the, the couple of things to think about you know will we find efficiencies other materials that could take its place that's kind of where I think it might come from but right? but cop I mean coppers it's, it's, I just feel like human race is fairly the ingenuity behind doing something more efficiently. I feel like if we've got the prospect of that, copper right. price is going to be yeah. two, mm. three times higher than where it is yeah. today. And so therefore, we'll we're going to find other metals that maybe can the, take that the place. The mechanism sorts yeah. that out. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'd be shocked if we ever saw it quite as severe as that. But as it stands at the moment, yeah, I mean, that's the credible. Like, when, you, when you compound the demand growth of copper as it is needed for the energy transition, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And looks we like. simply don't have the mines because if we think back to where it was 2014 when China had its wobble, that's more or less when investment stopped into new copper supply right. because all the miners had balance sheets that, well, they were like the oil companies mm. before the oil price collapsed. They had balance sheets that were overextended. Some of them had recently done deals. So yep. they spent the next few years sorting balance sheets and getting capital spend under control to rewrite their uh, balance sheets and then you know they've not really pushed ahead with any projects because exactly the same as what's happening with energy now mm. was happening then with miners mm. all the investors are like please don't bring any supply on board because yeah. we really don't want it we've got china that's slowing at the moment nobody wants your metal stop investing and it's a lot of money over a long period of time mm. and there's a hugely uncertain outlook for the demand the difference now of course is that the demand assuming we all actually participate or want to support the energy transition yeah. Because yeah. that's, of course, what's the thing that might happen. The cost of it is just too great for us to, willing to, to bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally banging the table for copper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, to your point's correct, though, of course, is around the metal category, the, the, the 
the characteristics of the metal copper and for what it needs to be doing for the moving energy around in an efficient manner is like, yeah, it's obviously mm. far superior than anything else. Will something come into supplant it? I mean, that's one of the things with respect, you know, lithium has many similar dynamics, mm. but that could also be changed if we had solid state batteries or we had maybe more hydrogen in the mix, as in we had some of the vehicles are hydrogen, some of them are vehicles are solid state batteries. We're not all just driving conventional lithium ion batteries. Sure. Um, I feel like we could get there, but yeah, I mean, in this chart here is, you could paint very similar pictures for a number of different energy transition metals. And you know, we, we spoke about OPEC a lot. We're gonna have a new OPEC in the sense of where these metals are held yeah. and who refines them. Yeah. And China refines China them all. Is a big player, right? This year we had, I think, gallium export controls. Gallium, I think, is used in semiconductors. Yes. Saw that. They've wow. said that. And then just in the last week it was graphite. And they said, right, we're not exporting any graphite, and graphite prices have gone wow. up. And we're going to find the same with all the other metals that they produce. And so it's mostly a, the melting smelting. There is a geopolitics angle here, then, isn't it? Absolutely. And of course China's been very clever investing. They're way ahead of the Africa West. Taking, you know, the, what's it called? The belt, yeah. belt, belt and road. But, yeah. you know, the government has a plan, and I've said this before, and it, it sort of links into Taiwan a bit, but they have a view of where they want to be, and that is economically independent in mm -hmm. 20, 30 mm -hmm. years. And they have the resources, and they also have the construct of society to be able to deliver that. So they want to reduce their dependence upon overseas energy. And how do they do that? Right, we domestic. They produce all our energy. How do we do that? We do that by renewable energy. How do we do that? Right, we build the supply chain to enable us yeah. to deliver all mm -hmm. those things. And they've done that over the last 10 years, all the different um, plenary, that they, which is every five years, they roll out the next plan of how mm -hmm. they're gonna do that with their spend and where they focus it and the regeneration, reinvestment. I mean, like, they have a plan. Yeah. They're leading, their spend, the China spends on energy transition is like, is like two or three times the US, which is number two behind, mm -hmm. so. They are pushing full steam ahead to try and reduce their dependence mm. upon other countries to be able to pursue their political ambitions elsewhere. Mm. Yeah, no, there, uh, there is a sort of a strong geopolitical angle, and, and maybe us in the West have been caught a little bit short by this, and we're a little yeah. bit on the back foot, um, despite the efforts of the Inflation Reduction Act in the States and, and whatever else yeah. we're trying to implement here. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, you know, full disclosure, we've got a few Anglo-American for clients, haven't we? Bit of Rio Tinto, got a bit of BP and Shell as well. So. You've got, we'll to have, see. you've got to have diversified players, haven't you, to yeah. have, have exposure to this. Yeah, yeah, and we've not—I mean, we've not touched on other areas that you know I think are interesting, and we're both farmers' sons, so it would be interesting to have touched on the, the agricultural commodities and the softs and the fertilizer and, and that sort of stuff. We'll have another um, round. Hughesy might have Hughesy might have fallen asleep by then. Um, <laughs> we're so about I think to run out of time. I think we'll uh, I think we'll wrap it up. Uh, any <laughs> any final you know any final points for us, Hughesy? Words of wisdom. Not, not, nope. from my, <laughs> not, from my, not, not from my, not from my, not from my tactics. I have. Uh, I've thrown all my, all my, uh, yeah. my jewels in. Good. Well, on that note, uh, we'll thank Jamie for his time today and coming on and enlightening us all about commodity markets. Uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, any questions, then let me know. My email address is jonathan.raymond at quarterchevia.com. And we hope to see you next time. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.